Welcome to Kicko Roundtable. I am your host, Michael McRae. With me, editor Niels Christensen. How you doing, Niels? Pretty good. Happy Friday, guys. Happy weekend. Correspondent Paul Harris. Welcome, Paul. Hi, good afternoon. And special guest is Justin Reed, CEO of Troilus. Troilus is advancing a past-producing mine in northern Quebec. Justin, can you tell us about Troilus? Hi, good afternoon, guys. Um, Troilus is TSX-listed big board TLG. We're about $170 million market cap. Uh, we bought the past producing Troilus gold mine, which produced 2 million ounces of gold between uh, for 14 years uh, under the guidance of InMet from first quantum about three and a half years ago. We've drilled 80,000 meters and we now have uh, an indicated inferred resource of 8.1 million ounces, completed RPA and moving it through the feasibility uh, process. Lots of activity up in uh, Quebec. Busy place. Uh, Quebec is really busy right now. Um, certainly coming out of the COVID hiatus, I guess. Uh, you'll see that, especially with the robust equity markets, everybody's cashed up. And what that means is you're seeing an incredible amount of safe but aggressive work at all the sites from mine to really junior exploration and regional exploration. And I think uh, I was talking to the guys at Shibugamu drilling yesterday and they are almost at 100% capacity of all their rigs. So uh, all the things that come with the boom we're seeing. Uh, I want to get into a discussion about uh, how things are looking uh, regarding uh, suppliers, regarding equipment, uh, how you're doing your assays, uh, how Quebec is working right now. Would it be interesting to get your perspective there? You also have a background as a mining analyst, and we're also going to be talking about uh, some of the uh, equity and uh, listings uh, that actually happen later in the podcast, and it'll be great to get your view on that. But first, we start with gold. It's all about gold. What happened uh, with uh, gold this uh, week, uh, Niels? It looks like it was weighed down by uh, lack of stimulus talk. Yeah, well, it was it was up, and then it was down, and then it was up again. And uh, it's we're just we're really flirting around this this nineteen hundred dollar an ounce level, um, and it it is it's all about elections. It's all about stimulus. Who's going to have the biggest package? Um, and but I, I I think it's just you know we're gonna have to wait until after the election. The the waters are so muddy right now. Um, everybody's reacting to every headline that comes out, and it's just it's creating this this volatility and and the reality like even with all this volatility, but we're just, we're stuck in, in this mud at $1,900 an ounce. It's surprising to me because everybody's anticipating a stimulus. There's going to be a stimulus. If it comes from the Democrats, there's going to be a stimulus. If it comes to Republicans, I guess the only problem could be is if you actually end up with a Republican controlled um, uh, Senate uh, that could actually put the brakes on any type of stimulus. So at that point, then they don't want to, um, they don't want to give the Democrats a break. Yeah, well, I think I think that's I think it sort of goes back and forth and, you know, sort of along the political spectrum. Uh, I think, you know, right now, people that I've been talking to, everybody's actually sort of pricing now in a Biden win and a Democratic sweep because that's the best way to get stimulus. Um, if Trump gets in, uh, yes, there's, there's still going to be a stimulus package. You know, he was saying that, there, you know, it's going to be the biggest, best, whatever. Um, but, uh, Republicans aren't going to take back the house. It's just, it's, it's a near impossibility. They just, there's too many seats that they would have to get to get the house so they can get the Senate, but they're still stuck in 
um, Democrat-controlled House, and nothing nothing will get done. So people are starting to to sort of price that in, and now like things are shifting to maybe Biden's going to be better for for the global for the for the U.S. economy because that that stimulus is almost guaranteed then. Let's switch to uh, junior and uh, development news. Paul, uh, I was noticing Argonaut Gold is uh, going ahead with its $380 million mine. Yes, um, Argonaut Gold made a, a construction decision for its Magino project in Ontario with first gold production slated for the first half of 2023. Um, it also said it's put in place or lined up a $400 million financing plan. Um, the mine would produce around 150,000 ounces of gold per year for the first five years, 17-year uh, mine life. Um, but it seems there's been a bit of uh, price creep already from the 2017 feasibility study, which put the capex at $320 million. And the company's now talking of 360 to $380 million. Uh, one of uh, last year's uh, big M&A headlines, uh, that was Shandong, and it's a $230 million offer for TMAC. It now is under a security review. Yes, that's right. Um, the Canadian government, uh, the federal government has ordered a, a national security review under the Investment Canada Act. Um, the reason being that Hope Bay is up in northern Canada. It's uh, very close to one of the, the southern route of the Northwest Passage, which is the, the sea route between the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, which is becoming navigable as the uh, sea ice or there's less sea ice each year. Um, this is very much into sort of international politics here. Um, the US says the Northwest Passage should be an inter considered an international sea route. Canada uh, flatly refuses to um, entertain such things. And so it needs to look into the fact of, you know, will foreign ownership of assets in that area compromise its position? Uh, Justin, uh, let's just uh, swing over to your viewpoint. Uh, you are operating in uh, Quebec. Um, you know, I've uh, I, I've spent the week uh, focused uh, on the Yukon. Uh, we're helping them with their uh, virtual site series uh, that they're having right now. Uh, a lot of activity up there, but uh, what I'm hearing from those people is uh, just kind of difficulty uh, getting uh, draw results uh, out of uh, the labs, uh, which has been a real hindrance. Um, how is it uh, like uh, operating and advancing a project up in the Yukon right now in Quebec? Well, you know, I, I think maybe unlike the Yukon a little bit, when you're looking at Rouen or Val d'Or or Shibugmu areas, you know, we, we have a significant amount of pre-existing infrastructure in place for mining. And that includes massive service centers, drilling companies that, you know, can service rigs from main shops three hours away. So I think access to labor, supplies, parts, turnaround from that side um, is probably the best there is right now. Uh, and we're, we're seeing very limited uh, impact for accessibility. Um, however, like anything, when you start getting into the the volume side of exploration or development where it's masses of samples, um, we're coming out of a period where everybody's cashed up. You know, we've had two great post PDAC financing windows and I think everybody's jumped into them. And so everybody from the $5 million market cap explorer to the $500 million explorer um, has capital and then they're exploring. So what we've seen um, in the Shibugamu, Northern Shibugamu area, James Bay, 
has been um, the usual delay. You know, we were putting samples in three months ago and getting turnaround in 10 days, two weeks from various labs. And it just keeps progressing and progressing. So, you know, turnaround, our last turnarounds were about three, three and a half weeks. We're getting indications that the, you know, the average turnaround probably in two or three weeks from now is going to be a month, which is very difficult if you are on a result dependent project. So you're placing your second drill hole based on the results of your first. That becomes a real, a real issue. Um, we're a little luckier, you know, we have, we have three rigs turning, we have a pre-existing program that's just getting laid out. So um, you're good, the market is going to see a ton of results, not just from Troilus, but from everybody in Quebec. Um, everybody's busy, um, but we're seeing delays uh, and we're seeing inflation and in pricing and we're seeing competitive uh, inflation in labor and skilled labor. That's, that's what we're seeing uh, when you could, you know, you ordered a, what do you call a waiter three years ago it was a geologist now we can't find a geologist so if you look at what for example fury gold is doing mike timmons now uh with the east main or in um mike's out looking and advertising for a geologist mike's a great buddy he's trying to poach half my guys everybody's poaching so what does that mean we're paying more money so labor and time is probably the impact but that's great for the industry too because that means we're going to have new discoveries and we need them. I, it always seems like this industry is boom and bust. It's, it's <laughs> never middle. It's never middle. <laughs> Cyclical is the word I wanted to use. Cyclical. Uh, in mining, uh, Barrett Gold on Thursday uh, reported preliminary third quarter gold production of 1.16 million ounces of gold and 103 million pounds of copper. That was respective 11% and 8% decreased on its output a year earlier. Uh, during the third quarter, there was no production at Sitzporgera Mine in Papua New Guinea after operation was placed on care and maintenance in late April uh, amid a dispute over a mining lease. Uh, Barracks Hemlo Mine in Ontario is also worth noting because it's winding down its uh, open pit operations uh, that uh, Hemlo has been operating as an open pit since 1989 and has produced more than 2.8 million ounces of gold. Now, I was sending out notes uh, just before we actually uh, did this uh, podcast uh, and and uh, both uh, Paul and uh, Justin uh, noted on this next piece of news, and that was uh, the quarter that uh, Beta Gold had. Uh, they had uh, 248,000 of ounces of uh, production in Q2. That was up 17% from a year ago. Oh, and uh, with uh, nice uh, gold prices, it really shows you a comparison. Uh, revenue tripled. Uh, they had 487 million of revenue. Uh, that was up from 176 million a year ago. And Paul, you noticed, um, well, let's start with production first. So Paul, you noticed the increase from Focola. Yes, um, one of the key contributions to their production increase was uh, a Focola in uh, Mali, um, which produced 152,000 ounces, which is 36% higher than the, the prior year period. Um, they've been expanding the mining fleet, optimizing pit designs, etc., And they're just completed um, an, a mid expansion to 7.5 million tons a year throughput capacity. Uh, very well. we'll put on your uh, mining analyst hat, uh, Justin, uh, what do these uh, numbers mean for the industry as a whole? Uh, you know, for, first of all, they sold gold at average price in 1924. When was the last time anybody did that? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and probably more importantly than anything else for me, just 
looking at how Clive has managed this, they're debt free. They paid back their revolver. They have absolutely no cat, uh, no debt, and now they're moving into most of the capex is behind them, and now it's it's a free cash flow machine. And you have a company that, you know, this year analysts and their guidance is suggesting they're going to produce just around a million ounces of gold. Forecast next year is kind of for a five percent less variance, but they're basically flat line right now to 2025 at a million ounces. So what do you do? And uh, all they're going to be doing right now is building cash. And what were their all-in sustaining costs, like 825? That's an unbelievable margin. You're making over $1,000 an ounce. Um, it, the company is perfectly set up in this market right now. What do they do right now? What do you think the pressures are going to be on them, Justin? What are uh, investors going to be asking? Well, it depends on who your investor is and where they want to position the company. You know, I'm sure I've listened to some of the, the podcasts, you know, we talk, you spent time talking about Buffett and, and U.S. retail, but probably more importantly is it's a, it's a more dogmatic question. Is the gold industry as a whole investment grade, right? And, and if it is, that means that it's about sustainable long-term cash flow and return of capital to shareholders. So if you are Bristow, that's where you want to go, right? It's about long-term longevity, return of capital, bringing in the grade A investor. If you're, you know, if you're Clive Johnson, who's maybe the most aggressive guy out there and has built incredible companies, um, I don't think he's going to be comfortable with a million ounces a year forever. He's going to be bored out of his mind and his uh, shareholders are going to move forward. So I think you're either paying dividends or growing. I think B2 Gold is going to keep growing. Paul. To, to add to your comments, Justin, you know, I think it's widely acknowledged in the industry that B2 Gold has one of the best, if not the best, mind building teams in the sector. And the company's success has been because Clive has managed to keep that team together over the years because it's had assets to develop. The next asset it's got to develop is the Gramolotti Gold project uh, in Colombia. But beyond that, um, he's going to be looking for things to do. And a lot of the acquisitions the company's made in the past have been sort of counter-cyclical acquisitions at the bottom of the cycle. And obviously that's not the case today. So um, I think he's going to perhaps have a, an internal philosophical struggle about, you know, the, the possibility of acquiring an asset at the high point of the cycle. I, I don't see him doing that, but um, the need to keep his team occupied and keep his team together may force his hand at some point. Oh, I agree. You know, he made, he made the Ojikoto um, acquisition when nobody was looking. And in fact, I think it was probably the most misunderstood asset out there. And it wasn't until they got their hands on it that the market truly understood what it is. Yeah, Gramolade comes in in 24 and 25. I don't know what the ultimate production is going to be there. But uh, yeah, he's, his team's busy for a little while. But what's next after that? I think that the feasibility study is due the first quarter next year. I think production, annual production is 350 to 400,000 ounces a year. So Justin, I, I wanted to ask that. I mean, do you think, you know, like if, you know, this, and, and I, I agree with you, this, this argument between growth or uh, dividends, you know, value. Um, but I'm, I'm just sort of wondering, I mean, do you think, uh, companies have learned their lesson from, from 2011? I mean, margins are, 
the best that they've ever been in history. You know, they've really cleaned up their, their, their balance sheets. Do you think they've learned their lesson or, you know, like this, this race to grow this race to become, uh, you know, a new tier in the mining sector, is that going to, you know, sweep things away? I, great question. And I'm going to, I'm going to say the evil word right now, which is hedging. And, <laughs> and I think the leading indicator for that is one, and we haven't seen it yet, but when we start to see these producing companies start to lock in that margin, you, you know, which way they're going. Mm-hmm. And we haven't seen that yet. Um, I don't know if I'm, if I'm answering the question, but we know who the growth vehicles are or the growth management teams are, and you back those horses. Uh, I think you're going to see a shift of investment because, um, you know, we have geographic dispersion of valuation right now. Australian equities, gold equities are trading substantially higher. And we might talk about Newcrest later. Canadians are far lower. Um, I, th- I think you're going to see a, a huge shift in investor base. Retail always do what retail does. Um, but the large institutions of the world, I think you're seeing them start to shift out of the established producer looking for a little more leverage in this market um, as we move forward. But as they exit, I think you're going to see a whole nother tier of you know, fidelity-based 401ks out of the U.S. come into Barrick. And, and then that's the exciting part because that is the holy grail of investment, right? U.S. generalist 401k money who have just said, we should hold some gold. And then well, I, that and yield. <laughs> that's this well, is the only place you can go for yield now. <laughs> well, and, and as a whole, the industry is the size of Apple, right? Or smaller. So it's going to be a lot of cash chasing, not a lot of stock. Well, I think that's also part of the, you know, Bristow's message is the, the industry needs to become more mundane and easily understandable with things like cash flow and dividends rather than having to educate your potential shareholders about oxides and sulfides and what they mean. Yeah, you need to take the technical um, requirement out of investing. And then I, I agree with that 100%. Just you do that uh, by established track records, and we don't have a track record yet, our good track record. Justin, uh, what are some of those uh, catalysts that you would see for uh, the developers and the juniors? You have this money that's uh, coming into uh, the miners, but uh, what do you think is uh, really going to lift uh, your sector? Um, is, it's a focused, uh, focus on U.S. retail. I mean, you know, the, the U.S. retail that's there now has always been there. You know, their gold bugs. We may have seen a little bit of expansion into it, but I, I don't think, and I, at least I haven't seen directly um, the true impact of what that can be. That's going to be the major catalyst. The, the others is we need the producers. We're not getting a lot of great global discoveries right now. Not like we should be, you know, Great Bear's done an unbelievable job. There's, there, are, there are great, perfectly priced discoveries now, but um, I, th- I think we need a flow of capital. And then for, for my space, especially, I need to see consolidation start, right? There's two trains that are going to happen. We're building our company to produce. 
right? And the shareholders will tell us when we're not going to do it, but we're going to do absolutely everything to the best of our ability with the goal of being a producer. You know, you can build another B2 gold out of a Troilus, but realistically, Bristow talks about the reserve cliff and it's absolutely real. Where in the world can you find, and you've got to be able to move the needle. I think that's probably the key. You know, Barrick and probably B2 Gold don't care about a 50,000 ounce producer a year. It doesn't do anything for them. You need consolidation for that to happen differently. Um, but what assets out there in the world right now can produce in excess of 150 or 200,000 ounces a year for a sustained period of time? And we have not seen that consolidation of single asset companies start. For me, that's really going to lift our sector more so than others. Do you think Northern Quebec has that potential? Like, do you think there's potential for that big discovery? I mean, there's, every, there's a lot of companies doing a lot of things out there, but I'm sort of wondering, I mean, you know, sure. there's still so much that is unexplored in Northern Quebec. I, 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 listen, I have to agree, but uh, <laughs> I'm biased, but, you know, let me put in perspective. We bought Troilus um, as a past producer kind of orphaned asset that everybody had forgotten about. It, it was a low grade bulk tonnage deposit at kind of circa gram, uh, produced profitably for 14 years, went into production at $250 gold environment. But InMed operated it on, InMed had Cobra Panama. This was not a corporate focus. They wanted a gold multiple, they didn't want to be a gold producer. So it kind of just executed that corporate objective. Everybody had an opinion of what it was. Uh, the opportunity for us is that not a lot of people loved it. We went in, bought it for cheap. 80,000 meters drilling later, we're 8.1 million ounces of equivalent of majority open pit material. That has the potential to produce over 200,000 ounces a year for 22 years. That's just Troilus. And we have a thousand square kilometers that have not been explored at all for 50 years. So then you go to Valdor. Uh, exact same thing. You look at what Jose and O3 are doing, they're putting the money in the ground. And then even more importantly, as you move north, well, I should touch on Kenoraland because uh, Troilus owns 5% of that company. Uh, they made a great discovery, 40 kilometers from us, under 10 meters of till. Our whole belt is covered in till, so nothing's exposed. 30 meters of 10 grams at 70 meters. You know, that's, that's like an Eleanor discovery hole. Hasn't been followed up. Sumitomo's controlling that now. Could be a blind target in an area nobody thought about. Then when you move north around Eleanor, you have azimuth and you have... Um, you know, you have the new Fury Gold, you have Quebec Precious Metals. These companies are drilling on great, on great assets that just have never had the capital to do it properly. So I look up in the northern James Bay north of us, and I, be, I bet you there's three or four or five more Eleanor saying there is time and money and expertise, and we just haven't had the chance. I think Quebec is always kind of second fiddle to Nevada and, 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 and maybe a little more focused areas where Quebec is insular, right? Um, Quebec takes care of its own. My three largest shareholders are Quebec funds and our management team. They provide capital and incentives to us. So you find that a lot of Quebec companies don't have to go too far afield and you don't know about it till later. Um, 
But I think from a geopolitical cost of capital and expertise, Quebec's probably the best place in the world. I'm biased. There were uh, some companies that uh, are expanding uh, their exposure to uh, retailers, uh, noting uh, new listings this week. Uh, Newcrest is uh, trading on the TSX and uh, Yamana is uh, now trading on the LSC. Uh, Justin, what uh, do these moves mean uh, for companies uh, when they have the new listings? Well, you know, if you, I, I think maybe for different reasons, but you look at Newcrest going to, um, to Toronto, probably a, a fairly predictable move. I think that, um, you know, an absolute tier one major. Um, I think that the generalist and even a lot of the institutions uh, in North America probably don't know Newcrest that well. They don't understand Lahir. They don't understand the true scope of these assets. I think some of their assets are in jurisdictions that maybe North American investors were wary of in the past and they're established now. Um, you know, North American investors understand South America really well, where the Asia PAC hate, hate South America, but they'll invest in Papua New Guinea all the time. So, you know, I think, I think it's global now. It's a new investor base, um, mandates of institutions to remain local um, are, are probably becoming more relevant. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they own, is it 70 or 75% of Ruth Chris? Their corporate development team is relocated to Toronto. I think when you look at the valuation of Australian developers and producers versus North American, and you have their balance sheet and you want to grow, it's time to come here. So let's get a listing here, establish a hub here, and start doing your work. They, I think they're just starting. So that's that one. Yamana, you know, Peter going to London. Um, you know, you have over the last five years new regulations and investment in in the UK. And what I found certainly is that um, a lot of European and especially UK-based institutional investment is locked to the LSE. You can't leave that exchange. It's mandated by the fund and by that capital. Even though there is, it's a global platform now, you can trade all the time anywhere. Their mandate says it has to say local. And, and I don't know if Brexit has any kind of impact on that, but um, the LSE is lacking that mid-tier, large mid-tier producer on that board. And uh, I think Peter wants to take advantage of first mover advantage on it um, for new investment and new capital. And so, you know, that one, I, I, I wasn't expecting as much, but Newcrest, I think certainly was uh, um, probably really well thought out. I can't uh, find the figures right now, but uh, Newcrest, I believe being one of the top five uh, gold producers in the world right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's move to uh, our figure of the week. Uh, this is uh, where we talk about a number or a stat uh, that kind of uh, stuck out uh, with people during the week. Um, Going to pick on you again, Justin. Uh, that's uh, we appreciate. Uh, that's terrific. Uh, your terrific insight uh, just regarding uh, listing. But uh, we always do start with the guests. Uh, what's your uh, figure of the week, Justin? So to to stay on the theme that we were just talking about, it's uh, forty one billion. Don't know. Not nothing. I'm stumped. That's, uh, I, I went there when we were talking about Newcrest earlier, and I was just doing a little bit of research going in. 
that's the number of mining company shares traded on the TSX last year. And uh, so, you know, we we're talking about liquidity. That's a huge amount of liquidity. 41 yeah. billion shares traded. And uh, I think that Newcrest doing that. I, I worked at, um, as head of mining research at Sprod in uh, the early 2000s, kind of through 2009, the big part of our business was bringing, it was the opposite. Canadian was, Canada was providing you better access to capital and more liquidity. And so a big part of our business was bringing the Australian listing to Canada. And at that time, you know, we brought Paladin Energy, the uranium company. Uh, our huge win uh, was Equinox Gold that Barrick bought out. We raised them $400 million over a couple of years. Um, and so I think we're seeing, we're, we're, we're kind of seeing the same thing. There's a big discrepancy in value now. Um, it's going to be interesting because the hedge funds are involved now and the ARBs are involved. And that makes, a, that puts a whole nother layer on to what we're talking about. I think that's uh, the one thing that has uh, been noticeable uh, during um, uh, during this new bull phase is uh, the ability that you want to get uh, larger and you want to get to that place where you uh, make yourself more investable uh, by the passive investors. Yeah. Uh, Paul, what's your number of the week? My number this week is 3.4 billion US dollars. And after... Two years of no new builds. Peru expects to see five projects start construction next year, gold and copper, um, I think silver as well, uh, totaling an aggregate of 3.4 billion US dollars. So mines are starting to be built again. That's what uh, good commodity prices do. Uh, Niels, your number. Actually, I have two this week. Mm. Um, so my first one is five. Uh, that's, that's a personal one to me. That's my, uh, that's my lucky number. And that's the birthday that my uh, daughter just celebrated. Uh, Yay, congratulations. <laughs> so I'm going to get, get a little gooey. Um, but my mining number is uh, 1909. Guesses? No. That's the average gold price in the third quarter. Um, up like $200 from the second quarter. Like this... I think people just don't really understand what kind of earning season this is going to be. Production is up. Uh, prices are up $200 from the previous quarter. Um, I just, you know, like bags and bags of cash are going to be unleashed by mining companies. Well, I think you're right because you're already in the initial third quarter production figures, a number of companies have already announced they're increasing dividends or even doubling dividends. Um, Kirkland Lake for one, um, Yamana Gold for another. So yeah, the shareholders- You, know, you look at uh, um, uh, um, First Majestic, uh, they released you know 5.2 uh, uh, million uh, equivalent ounces of silver produced in the third quarter. Um, just like the um, Grand Columbia had really good numbers. El Dorado record production at their uh, Lamac uh, mine in uh, Northern Quebec. Um, I just, yeah, I, bags of cash, like these mining companies are literally making bags of cash right now. And I just, I don't, I don't think people actually realize just how big this earning season is going to be. Yeah, to, to your point, um, 
just looking at Kinross forecast uh, on the forward curve right now, if all things remain equal, Kinross is going to produce in U.S. dollars $1.1 billion in free cash flow this year. And on the forward curve, it's 1.9 in 2023 if they can execute. Free cash flow. Unbelievable. Uh, I've got a related uh, Paul Harris number. It's also a Yukon number that is two in 12 months. That's two in 12 months. Uh, that's uh, new mine builds. Uh, so you had Victoria that was produced uh, that came up production uh, uh, 12 months ago. And now in uh, this quarter, we're going to be looking at uh, Alexco, which is going to be starting up uh, production as well. So that's uh, been a really big uh, shot in the arm for uh, the optimism in the region that uh, you do have uh, those uh, mines coming on and coming on quickly right now. That's it for us. I, I want to thank Justin uh, for joining us. Um, we're going to catch you on the way out, Justin. But I just want to note uh, that we're in the heart of conference season right now. Kiko Media is a partner with Invest Yukon. That's a virtual site series. Uh, so look for us. Uh, that um, Niels, I believe you're going to be on a panel. I'm also going to be doing some panels as well as some moderation this week. You can look for Kiko online uh, during those shows and then you can catch up. Uh, Neil, so it's also Explore. Yeah, so this week, you know, with Justin here, we've talked a lot about Northern Quebec. To learn more, uh, definitely tune in to the Northern, uh, the Quebec uh, Explore Conference, which is next week, uh, 19th to the 23rd. Um, and it's basically highlighting all of the companies and, you know, what's happening in Quebec, mostly what's happening in Northern Quebec. It's part of it is just incredible, this, the work that's going on up there. And if you want to uh, get a feel, uh, if you want to head down south for Latin America, when's your conference, Paul? On the 10th to the 13th of November via Zoom. Uh, Justin, uh, this is terrific. Thank you very much for your insight. Uh, is there any news that we can look forward to for uh, Troilus over the next 12 months? Well, uh, stay tuned. We have uh, over the next three or four weeks, be lots of regional work from us and then we have three rigs turning right now, and we're drilling 7,000 meters a month for the foreseeable future. Um, PA was out a week and a half or two weeks ago. Pre-feasibility is uh, kind of around the, around the corner. And, you know, I think we'll continue to develop uh, Troilus towards uh, that production decision. So um, not just a deposit, but we control the belt. And I think what we're showing, as Niels talked about earlier, is that uh, we're going to be able to show that the lack of capital in northern Quebec over the 50 years is, is going to turn to new discoveries now. So, Thank you, Justin. Uh, we're going to reprise our Jeff Clark. Uh, can you tell us about it, Niels? Yeah, so I uh, did an interview with uh, Jeff Clark, uh, precious metals analyst at goldsilver.com. And basically, he just lays out the laundry list of uh, factors driving gold prices from geopolitical uncertainty to the massive stimulus to um, election turmoil in the US. Uh, it's just, it's hard to be bearish on gold and commodities right now when there's just so much stuff happening in financial markets. That's it for us. If you like what you listen to, uh, please share a friend, uh, please let them know and our interview with Jeff Clark. Welcome to Kitco News. In the last few months, the gold market has seen some interesting volatility to say the least. Here to talk about his expectations for the precious metals markets in the final quarter of 2020 is Jeff Clark, precious metals analyst at goldsilver.com. Jeff, welcome back to the show. 
It's great to be back with you, Niels. Uh, it's been a few months. It, it's been it's been far too long, and so much has happened since we last talked. Uh, in June, you said that investors should be overweight gold. That this is this was the start of something bigger. How right you were. What are your thoughts going into the final three months of the year? Are are we still on track? For higher prices, you know, what's your thought on the consolidation that we've seen? Well, that's exactly how I would characterize it. It is a consolidation period. Since that interview that you and I had in June, gold's made new all-time historic high prices. It's since pulled back. It's been uh, trading in a range, consolidating, what have you. But it's still up 7 to 8% um, uh, since that interview that you and I had. So, I still think that there are uh, so many reasons to own gold. I mean, there are more catalysts for gold right now, Niels, than there are hairs on my head. I mean, if you were the god of gold and you designed an environment that was conducive for gold, you couldn't dream up any more of a perfect environment than what we have right now. I mean, think about it. We have issues with the, you know, uh, surrounding the US election. We have social unrest that's not quitting. We have concerns around the U.S. dollar, both in the short term and the long term. We have fallout from the coronavirus. We have monetary stimulus that's still going on. And by the way, I got to mention this, too. The U.S. Treasury hinted just a week or two ago that they may lend directly to borrowers. That is technically illegal for the Fed to do. And yet, guess what? So was buying corporate bonds. And they they bought corporate bonds. Corporate bonds is their third largest holding of an ETF, many of which are junk rated. They're not even investment grade rated. Then we have fiscal stimulus issues. We have negative real interest rates, vulnerable stock markets, central banks are buying. We have inflation concerns. We have another potential black swan that could come, right? We could have a white swan, like another Warren Buffett buying Barrett Gold, for example. And by the way, on top of all that, what is next? What is Trump's next tweet going to say? So there are so many catalysts that you really have to be long gold and continue to buy and denominate a large portion of your, um, you know, cash or your holdings in physical metal. I, I just I don't see any reason to change that whatsoever. That that's an impressive list. I, I don't think I've had anybody actually list every single factor that uh, that is driving gold. And I don't think you've left any out. It's it's been incredible. Uh, but, you know, like what gets us back to 2000, you think? Is it just patience? Like with everything that's happening, is it just patience? Um, and I ask this because, you know, we have seen talk about uh, stimulus, you know, one minute's on, one minute's off, you know, it's back on again you know, maybe piecemeal, stuff like this. And, and I'm sort of wondering, does, you know, the long list uh, uh, of stuff supporting gold, but what's the, the catalyst to drive it back up to, to where it was in August? Yeah, that's a fair question. But I mean, who really knows? Uh, the point is, there's so many potential catalysts, both uh, big picture catalysts, but also short term things that could ignite the gold price. I mean, gold's only about 6% or so uh, back to 2000, uh, as you and I talk here today. So it's not that big of a jump. It could do that in a week or uh, give me two Trump tweets and we're back to 2000. So <laughs> who, who knows what it's going to be? Um, but 
but put it in perspective, look how far gold has come since its March low. It's risen a tremendous percentage. It was on quite a run, same with silver. It's not too surprising to see, simply based on price action, to see gold uh, consolidate, pull back, uh, get a little more quiet here, if you will, and trade in a range until the next big catalyst ignites it. So I don't know, uh, I would be very surprised if we're not over 2000 by the end of the year. Um, but again, in the big picture, uh, any, any dip in the price here is nothing but a buying opportunity for me. And that's because the big picture for me demands higher gold prices. Uh, Jeff, <laughs> I love your outlook on gold. Uh, what about silver really quickly? Uh, do you like the precious metals? Uh, what are your thoughts if, if we do see uh, weaker economic growth? Does that, is that going to weigh on silver prices? Um, it could. We do know historically silver has not performed well during recessions. Gold has. Silver has not performed well during stock market crashes. Uh, gold holds up very well. Uh, central banks buy gold. They don't buy silver. Uh, so silver is vulnerable in that specific environment. Uh, but look at the potential. Um, silver is roughly 42% below its all-time high still. And yet gold has made new all-time highs as in, and is hovering near that still. So on a, on a long-term basis, the potential for silver, especially the catch-up, if you look at it that way, could be tremendous. But in the short term, depending on what the issue is, if it's deflationary, if it's recessionary, if it's something about a you know poor economic growth, yes, that could temporarily weigh on silver. But again, there again, I would view that as uh, pretty much a buying opportunity. So do you, do you think silver hits all-time highs then? I mean, gold hit it. So do you think it's just a matter of time before silver hits it? Yes. Yes, I do think silver's headed back there. Uh, probably not in the short term, uh, but in the long term, I do, especially if we get an inflationary environment. Think about the two biggest rises we've seen in the silver price in modern times. One in the 1970s when we had runaway inflation, and then from 2009 to 2011 when we had the fear of inflation. Those were the, that was the environment for silver's two biggest rises. We get inflation again, uh, headline inflation, and it catches the mainstream off guard a little bit. I mean, that could be last train out of the station for silver. That would signal that um, it's ready to begin its big run. Jeff, this has been fantastic. Switching gears a little bit, let's look at the mining sector. Uh, companies are getting ready to release their third quarter earnings. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the earnings season that, that we're going to be seeing fairly soon? I think that uh, the miners are going to be the... Uh, biggest green on the screen for Wall Street traders and investors. And that's because in Q2, the average gold price was around 1710. In Q3, the average gold price, the average gold price was over $1,900 an ounce. It was 1908 to be exact. So there's a $200 an ounce rise in the gold price between Q2 and Q3. Plus the mines are mostly back online. Uh, and fully staffed uh, from Q3 to Q2. So they really could be the big green on the screen for uh, many Wall Street traders and people looking at earnings. So I expect earnings to be very strong in Q3 for the producers.
What do you think about investor interest? It does feel like, I completely agree with you, but it does feel like investors are continue to ignore the mining sector. We haven't really heard about you know, big run-ups and, and everybody sort of knows that they're just making big piles of cash. You know, their expectations for margins and free cash flow uh, just keep going up and up. Um, is there still value in the senior producers? The answer to that question is what one thinks the future uh, of the gold price is. If one thinks the gold price is going to go higher, then yes, earnings are going to continue. Free cash flow is going to continue to rise and make them very, very attractive. Remember, the gold price can rise very abruptly um, uh, while costs uh, usually do not. Costs would go up in an inflationary environment, but costs tend to respond slower than the gold price does. And so there's going to be uh, a greater margin there for producers as we go forward. Remember, we did have a big run-up in the gold stocks uh, with gold there from March to uh, early August. Um, my personal portfolio can attest to that. Uh, I was way overweight mining stocks in terms of value versus gold because of the big run that they had had. So they're consolidating as well. Again, the answer is, what do you think is the future for gold for not just next month, but the next two, three, four, five years. And that'll tell uh, you how to invest in mining stocks. So bottom line, do you think we should still be overweight precious metals then, gold, silver, and miners? Well, since there are more catalysts than hairs on my head, as I said, that tells yeah. me that, yes, we do need to still be overweight. I, I am still buying gold. I'm still buying silver. I'm still buying miners, especially on the pullbacks. But until someone can tell me that whole list I rattled off, that all of those issues are resolved, everything's mm -hmm. healthy now, the economy is, is growing legitimately, everyone's getting along now. If you can convince me of that, then I'll go underweight gold. But until all those things change, I'm definitely going to remain overweight gold. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've really enjoyed uh, listening to your thoughts on the precious metals markets. How can people get more information from you? Well, I do write exclusively for goldsilver.com. And actually, you can get uh, Mike Maloney's free book there on the website if you want. He's giving it away free now. Um, I do post my buys and sells of mining stocks and gold and silver uh, on my Twitter handle, which is at the gold advisor. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for watching Kitco News. For the latest in the precious metals markets, go to kitco.com. Stay safe and stay healthy.